Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard... The nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endend.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Nadia with me. Nadia is from Brisbane and suffered from an eating disorder after graduating from university. Alongside her job in arts administration, she now also acts as a lived experience speaker and peer mentor through Eating Disorders Queensland and is passionate about sharing her story of illness and recovery to help others feel less alone. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nadia. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Millie. It's great to be here. I'd like you to begin with giving our listeners an insight into your journey, a bit of an overview. Yeah, so I just wanted to start firstly by acknowledging the privilege that I experienced in my financial situation, my family situation, that I'm a cis white female, so it was easier for me to access what I needed perhaps than other people might have experienced. So just as I tell my story, I wanted to acknowledge that alongside that. So yeah, I got sick after uni. After I'd graduated, I had two degrees, did science and music. And the music especially, it was very, a lot. you get a lot of feedback all the time. And I was good. So I got lots of positive feedback pretty much constantly through practice class, through my teacher, through performance. And then when I graduated, I, well, all of that just stopped. And I'd had that kind of feedback all the way through school and uni and achieve achievement focus, basically. Yes, yeah. And then when I graduated, I had trouble finding work and I was still living at home with my parents and I felt very pressured to still be achieving the way that I had previously been and I wasn't. And I wasn't living up to those, what I perceived as the expectations that were upon me. And so then I turned to disordered behaviours and, and that kind of thing. But really, it started way before that point. It came from how I was raised, how I grew up. As I was growing up, I felt that I had a sense of myself only as daughter, not as myself, as Nadia. So my whole sense of self and my whole sense of purpose was to be the best daughter that I could be and achieve and not bring any stress or negativity to my parents. And my parents are are really wonderful people, but due to how they were raised and our family is Jewish, so we 
naturally carry the transgenerational trauma from the Holocaust. And my, my grandparents, who in raising my parents, they just wanted to bury that and just move on. But they themselves were very, very wounded by that. And my parents then wanted to give me and my sister a better upbringing than what they had had. But what they never knew and weren't really ever able to work through and experience was the effects of that trauma and how it affected how their parents raised them emotionally. So they were quite unable to validate emotions, especially negative emotions. We needed to be happy all the time. We needed to be good all the time, achieving, doing well. So that kind of all, for me, turned out to what would probably be called childhood emotional neglect. And I was not taught how to process negative emotions. So I just was, when I had a negative emotion, it was, I was bad. But really all of that didn't really affect me until all of the achieving stopped when I graduated. Because before that, I was like, oh, I'm great. I'm achieving. So I'm being the best daughter. Mm, I'm therefore good. And therefore I'm good and everything's Mm, fine. mm. But that undercurrent of all those unexpressed negative emotions was there. And I realise now how powerful emotions are and how important it is to to process them and really feel. So, yeah, recovery really, really was a very long road for me and not just about eating and gaining the weight and doing the fear foods. And it really wasn't about returning to a pre-illness state. I really had to reinvent myself and rediscover myself or not even rediscover but discover and Mm. allow myself to be me for the first time in my life. Yeah, not daughter. Not daughter but Nadia. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and really come through all of that and go through what an adolescent would go through in their experimentation with what they like and what sort of clothes they want to wear and how they want to have their hair and the things that they like and dislike and how they want to spend their time and they experiment and they have lots of feelings and you normally have healthy adolescents, you have friends along with it and hormones. And I didn't have any of that because my peers were in their late 20s, had already gone through that for most of them as as healthy, mentally healthy people. And of course, I also didn't have all of the teenage emotions that kind of make it make sense. So it was quite a full on journey. And then, yeah, really coming, finding Eating Disorders Queensland and just getting involved in the community there and all their groups and then coming through and being able to train as a speaker and as a mentor and really start to give back to the community. That's given a lot of meaning to my life now. It's so important, I think, Carolyn Coston's eight keys to recovery. You know, the last key is finding meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. And I know for me myself, finding that meaning and that purpose was a huge part of my journey as well. And I love the fact that you talk about reinventing yourself or, or actually discovering yourself for the first time. And I think it can be so scary. Often clients say to me, well... Yeah, but Mill, I, I don't know 
what life's going to be like without my eating disorder. I don't know what I'm going to be like. And I like to always remind them that I think this is a wonderful opportunity that you've got. You can be whoever you want to be. I always give this blank canvas analogy of splashing brightly colored paint all over this canvas in whichever way that you want to make your life what you want it to be. And I think when we go through these experiences, we have that opportunity. And perhaps if we hadn't gone through these experiences as traumatic as they may be we've not we may not have had this opportunity to truly become the essence of who we are yeah that's so true i feel so fortunate that i've had an opportunity to go through all of those experiences and really experience them very vis- viscerally in myself and now i know myself so well almost more than other people know themselves Because I've done all that deep work. I could not agree with you more. I think it is one of the gifts of recovery is you know yourself inside out, upside down. You really do. You know how to harness your traits and use them positively. You know your sensitivities. It's, yeah, I think it is one of those gifts. And I, I really resonate with what you said around achievement and around that absolute positive reinforcement that we have. And when we are high achievers and we are be praised for that over and over again, it is only natural that we put the two and two together that if I continue to achieve, therefore I continue to be a good person and I meet these these expectations, even if our parents or our peers or our teachers aren't necessarily articulating it, you do internalise that yeah. and you want to measure up, you want to make people happy and in that people pleasing, it's often a really, really dangerous place to be if you are predisposed to having an eating disorder. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Now, for those who are listening today that have no experience with eating disorders, can you describe to them what it feels like to live with an eating disorder? Yeah. So I had my eating disorder for about four years before I started recovery properly. When I was first sort of falling into it, it feels euphoric felt like I was, you know, I was doing the right thing. It really started for me when, so I was sort of having trouble finding work and all of that. And then one day my, I was trying on clothes and my mother commented on my body and that I'd gained a bit of weight during uni and hadn't done an awful lot of exercise and maybe I should go for a walk. And that was the, something just clicked in my head. And I went, okay, well, I can't find a job and I'm obviously a failure. Here's something I can achieve at. Here's something I can do and make, make them happy. And I can I can go for a walk and I can eat healthy. And it just went from there. And so, yeah, so at first, great. I'm doing something. I'm achieving something. This is what everybody says is healthy. This is the right thing to do. And then as it kind of progressed, it became that my main aim was to disappear. I kept saying, I just want to disappear. And just trying to disappear. And... Physically, the thing that I remember remember most is lying in bed at night and I had no cushioning in my body and I could feel my heart beating through my body on, like, in the mattress every beat. And that was scary. That was really scary. Yeah. It's a hideous feeling, isn't it? Yeah. And then, really, when I did start recovery, my inner experience got a lot worse first. It didn't just get better because I'd started recovery. It was such torment Hmm. of having that cognitive dissonance between I know I should do 
this recovery thing, but I need to do the behaviour and I need to continue on the eating disorder path and having to rip between those two and really make a choice a million times a day to do the next right thing and how painful that was. And I just felt so constantly exhausted and burnt out doing that for years, trying to keep on the right steps. And then later, once I had made some progress in recovery, I became very fearful and protective of what I had achieved and how far I'd come in my recovery. And I got very angry when I saw diet talk or gym advertisements or people at work talking about diets. I got really angry (laughs) because I was like, can't you see what this is? And also I'd done all this work to get this far and I didn't want to get triggered accidentally by seeing something or hearing something that I wasn't quite ready to deal with. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I think until you've been there, people just don't get that. Absolutely <laughs> not. Don't. And I think the thing is too, something that can begin so innocently as you say, like, I can go for a walk. I can do that. I can eat healthy. Sure. Just watch me. <laughs> and then... It's that snowball effect. And I think it's so important that nowadays there's really no excuse not to be more aware and mindful of the language that we're using, what we're saying, not subscribing to to diet culture, even though we literally are saturated in this society with it. Everywhere we look, I, I mean, we are making progress. It's an intense space to be living in when you have a history of an eating disorder or you're still struggling. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And it's everywhere. It's in television ads that aren't even about food. Like, it sure is. <laughs> it everywhere. sure is. Yeah. Were there moments in your journey where you felt hopeless? And, and if so, what helped you to keep that hope alive? I don't think I really connected with hope very much during my recovery until the much later stages. The way that I define hope now is it's not okay but it's going to be okay. But when I was recovering, because of the emotional issues that I had, it felt like I wouldn't let myself believe the it's not okay because I couldn't validate myself. And the but it's going to be okay felt invalidating of the intensity of what I was going through. So I just kept on dragging myself through and... Now I like to kind of look at it as hope, H-O-P-E, hold on, pain ends. I really like that now. Mm, I remember reading that and just going, yes, that's bang on. Yeah, yeah. And that helped me as well because it was validating the pain and showing that the distress and the pain that I was going through was really very proportionate to the intensity of the therapeutic work that I was doing mm. and the the self-discovery and the self-finding and that the pain validated to me that I was going in the right direction because it hurt so much that that must be right. And the outcome that I was coming to was that I, I started to understand that I was finding myself and being able to be my true self for the first time, that was what the outcome was going to be. And once I understood that... I wanted that desperately for myself and I wouldn't let anything get in the way of getting that once I came to understand the underlying 
issues and, and what I could do and was to do in recovery. And I just wanted that so badly. Like mm. I'd never wanted anything for myself personally in my entire life. That kept me going mm. in the hard times. And it is like you've got to vehemently, vehemently hold on to it for dear life over and over again, yep. every moment of every day. And you've got to be as relentless in your pursuit of recovery as your eating disorder is about pursuing you. Yeah. You've just got to match it with that relentlessness. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, you were talking before about sort of the underlying issues that led to the development of your eating disorder. I would love to explore more about how being Jewish affected you growing up. Yeah. So my family is Jewish, so I, my family of origin is Jewish. Being Jewish is not just a religion. It's also a nationality, race, genetics, culture and tradition. So... I felt very much like I was trapped, that I had no choice, that no matter what I thought or what I believed, I would always have Jewish genetics, Jewish blood, Jewish history. And the Jewishness is passed down on the mother's side by blood. So even if the mother is not practising, and my mother, for instance, she was she's Jewish, she wasn't raised Jewish because my grandparents came from Germany after the war, and they were like, we're not doing this anymore, it's not safe, we're going to hide our Jewishness and not practice. So my mother didn't know that she was Jewish until she met my Jewish father, and then it all came out. Growing up, we weren't a particularly religious family, but it was a very important part of our identity, and my family is one of the oldest families in the Brisbane community. We can trace back to founding the community in Brisbane, so we're, we're one of the sort of most respected families. Everybody knows us. And in Jewish life, the children are given a Hebrew name as well as their anglicised name. So my name was essentially Nadia, daughter of P, which is my father's first letter of my father's name. So in the community, I was known as Nadia, daughter of P. And everybody knew that I was dad's daughter. And I didn't have my own identity as Nadia in the community. And that, that's how you're basically referred to in important ceremonies and that kind of thing, always as the daughter of the father. So I didn't really have my own identity in the community. And also we attended an Orthodox synagogue, so it was separated. Females sat upstairs and didn't participate in religious things. We just sat and watched. And all the prayers and everything's in Hebrew which I can read but not understand. So it's it's not very inclusive. And I really didn't feel the, the pastoral sense. I have friends who are Christian who really feel very connected with their church and their community and have a very good sense of belonging and connection and communal connection within their religion. I just didn't feel that being Jewish. So as I recovered, I decided to shed that. And actually my... Nadia, daughter of P, was my, like, old self, and my new self is just Nadia me, where I can choose. So it's been, it's been interesting to be saying I grew up Jewish because I've been saying I am Jewish for so long. I started eating foods that we don't usually eat, non-kosher foods, seafood, pork, those kind of things, just to test out what I missed for 30 years, find out what I like, 
calamari rings are awesome. Um, <laughs> they sure are. Yeah, so I think in the Jewish community as well, there's a lot of this, the Holocaust trauma is really very present, but it's not talked about from an emotional well-being sense. It's just there and it affects everybody and the people who have been through that, who have immigrated to Australia, they have horrific stories which are told over and over, but there's no sort of... I feel like there's no like emotional work really being done to help hold that and how it then affects the second generation and the third generation who've grown up hearing those stories from our grandparents over and over and over again because they're traumatised. And then how it affects me, the third generation, who are raised by people who were raised by people who've mm. been through that. So there's a little bit of research being done now in Israel about second and third generation trauma. But from what I understand, it's more about how you perceived the grandparents rather than the emotional effect that it has on mm. the grandchild. Yeah. So. so how did then did your eating disorder journey and your eventual shedding of you know, Judaism affect your relationship with your family? Yeah, really did very much, very much. So it was very hard for my family. I actually, I needed space. Once I worked out the daughter of P thing and the being involved closely still with that, with my parents was holding me back from being my true self. I realised I needed to make some space. And really what had happened growing up was that I had no boundaries really with my parents. We were quite enmeshed, especially with my mum. And to the point where I couldn't make decisions about buying a new pair of shoes or something at the age of 25 without checking with my mum first. Mm-hmm. That validation, that yeah. reassurance. Can I have this? Is this okay? So the first time I bought a pair of shoes was just like, and didn't show her. I wore them to work and didn't show her. The liberation. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a pair of shoes. So, yeah, I really needed that space to sort of unenmesh myself, if that's a word. And so I actually estranged myself from my parents for about two and a half years, which was quite difficult because we lived five minutes away from each other, potentially shop at the same shopping centres. So for a while that was pretty difficult. And it, as well as having a big effect on my parents, also for my sister... She was so worried that would she ever have the whole family all together in the same room ever again, which was really, really painful to know that I was affecting her, but I had to do it for myself. And she was so amazing that she supported me all the way through. She knew that it was something that I had to do, even if she didn't understand, but she supported me, which was fantastic. How wonderful that you had that support. Yeah. Yeah, so she lives in Sydney, so she wasn't really around to kind of support me, but knowing that she wasn't feeling really negative to me, that she understood that I needed to do this, that was just really, really fantastic for me. So, yeah, so without my parents, I turned to one of my aunts and she was my, like, most amazing main support through the whole thing. And... She was the one I would ring when I couldn't get out of bed. She was the one I would ring when I couldn't work out what to have for breakfast. She was the one I would ring in tears. She was amazing. And so just having her, it it really, really helped that I knew that I could ring her and just be really honest. And she herself has already done her own work of escaping the family vortex. 
so she really understood what I was going through with trying to extract myself from all of that. It must have been really valuable to have someone that really truly understood what you know what was happening. Oh, it was so amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, still with my parents, I'm still rebuilding our relationship. We're back in contact. We see each other every few months. Still trying to work out what we talk about, what we don't talk about, how much I share with them, what we do together, how long we see each other for, where we go, what we do. Yeah, we're still working it out, but it's definitely improving. And I do love them and I do want to have them in my life. I just I need to be very protective of what I've, what I've done and careful of my boundaries and all of that kind of thing with them as well. So... I'm glad that it's turned out this way. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's great mm. that you, you feel in a good place about that. Mm. In terms of body acceptance, where do you feel that you're at with that? Yeah, so I think I'm definitely at a place of acceptance of how my body is now. I really love my body. It gets me around. It does things it can run for buses it can (laughs) it can do all sorts of things it's quite amazing it's definitely been a messy process but definitely feel in a really good spot with that now that's so great isn't it great when you get to that spot my goodness is messy getting there yeah but when you just get there and you think oh this is kind of neat there's just that utter radical acceptance yeah i know in my own journey I often asked, thought to myself, will I ever get there? Will I actually ever get there? How do these people just radically accept all of this? It's not necessarily like someone asked me the other day, well, when did you know? And I was like, well, it wasn't this one particular crescendo moment. It was just little moments of, oh, I don't really care about that anymore. Isn't that fabulous? Yeah. Yeah, and it was definitely a, a difficult journey. And I found that as my body changed and my clothes fitted differently... And as that happened, that was a challenging process, but coming to it now, and it's not always perfect either. There's sometimes a bad day, sometimes I don't feel great about it, but the vast majority of the time, I really don't care what my body looks like. And I just feel very comfortable in it now. It's so wonderful. What would be your advice to people who are struggling with having body changes and having to update their wardrobes and what would be your advice to them? Yeah, I think firstly is just to acknowledge that it's part of recovery and it's going to happen and it's probably going to happen a few times in cycles. That's what happened for me. Me too. (laughs) A few different sizes in that wardrobe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and just so the accepting is definitely the first thing. And then a really helpful thing that my therapist taught me about, you know, getting new clothes is rather than going, oh, I don't fit these clothes, my body's bad, it's these clothes don't suit me. These clothes don't have enough material for me to feel comfortable in and that that's how to kind of It's such a great reframe. Yeah, of it's the clothes' fault, it's the item's fault, not your body's fault. And also realising that clothes are made and designed by people who've never seen your body. And so how can they possibly get it right for everybody? Because everybody's body is different. How can a size X be the same for every size X in every style of clothing ever? 
So there's going to be variability in different brands and different styles that you're not going to be the same size across everything. And as I realised that I was going to be replacing my clothes a few times, rather than buying nice things, like I didn't want to look daggy, but I just bought cheaper things. That op I need. shops are great. Op shops are great <laughs> when you get to a size that you can op shop in. Mm. So I found that I couldn't op shop when I was in the smaller sizes because there was hardly anything available. Now I love op shops. And I just op shops, Kmart, <laughs> Uniqlo, <laughs> basically that's my outfits, Princess Highway, things that are really comfortable, things that have elastic in them, things that have an A-line shape without having a fitted sort of bust kind of thing so that there's room to move so that I could wear it for longer than a month those kind of things and also I just didn't want to be spending a lot of money on something that I was like I'm only going to be wearing this for six months and then next season I won't be able to wear it again because my body's still changing and just accepting that and then going through my wardrobe in a few cycles and getting rid of the things that didn't fit me donating them to charity or for things that were not donatable. H&M has a textile recycling program where you can take any brand of clothes and they send it for recycling and turn it into into rugs and all sorts of things. So that was a good way to sort of environmentally consciously know that I wasn't just chucking everything in landfill. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me more about the intuitive movement work you've done with the amazing exercise physiologist Alana Dobinson. How has that transformed your relationship with exercise? Oh, Alana is so amazing. So I saw her for about six sessions last year and I used the chronic disease management plan sessions for that. And that was kind of an adjunct to my recovery. I was already in a pretty good place recovery-wise, but I really wanted to see whether I could develop a more intuitive relationship with my body and movement, just like I'd done with food and eating where with intuitive eating, I could go, what do I feel like today? I'll have this, oh no, maybe this, and a little bit of that, and okay, I'm done now, and what will I have later? And with exercise, I did no exercise during during recovery because I really just needed to not have that as a, a factor while I was doing fear foods and everything. And so I wanted to see whether I could have that intuitive relationship as well. So I, I got in touch with her because I saw her on a vodcast that EDQ did and I was like, I need to talk to this person. She's amazing. She's literally written the guidelines on how to integrate exercise into recovery. And the thing that I really got out of it most was we didn't do an awful lot of movement together, but we did a lot of talking and a lot of connecting values with movement and identifying what my values were and how that linked to the movement options that I wanted to choose and how I wanted to engage in movement. So for me, I like to do things more on my own. I like to be independent. I like to have choice and flexibility in what and how long and where and when I do things. So that meant that team sport structures wasn't right for me, but individual sport and movement such as swimming and bouldering and yoga really suit me where I can go on my own, I can stop when I want to, take a break in the middle, no one's telling me I need to do what, when and where. So 
that was really massive for me to be able to connect those things. And also learning from her about all the different elements that go into exercise and the different things that still count as movement, even if you're not in pain and sweating. (laughs) That's still movement. That's still... The best kind of movement. (laughs) Yeah. We don't need to be in pain and sweating. It's not... Yeah. yeah. It's about enjoying it. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be boring and repetitive with loud music and lots of yelling. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I am with you on that, sister. Definitely. There's nothing relaxing. Everybody's different. Some people like that and that's... If we're all very, very different, but mm. I think there should be nothing punishing about movement. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it should be joyful movement. What do I feel joy doing? And being creative in the movement choices as well. And creativity is something that I value. So bringing that into it as well was really important for me. And Alana runs a, I think two evenings a week, a class called Movement My Way, which is a small group sort of gym class. But it's in a very sort of non-gym kind of environment. It feels very safe. It's very values connected. We're very encouraged to check in with ourselves of what our needs are in that moment, how we want to do the exercises that are on offer. And they're all different levels. You can choose to do a really easy one if you just want something gentle or you can do something a little bit more strenuous. It's like a little circuit class. And so I go to that occasionally It's a bit of a hike for me to get there, but I really, really value it when I'm there. And yeah, so now I've just got a nice sort of palette of options, I Mm, suppose. Nice little balance going on. Yeah. Now, you mentioned creativity. Talk to me about the role that journaling and art played in your recovery journey. Yeah, journaling was a really important thing for me. I felt like I had so many thoughts and feelings going on in my head and the learning curve that I was going through was so like immensely steep Mm. that I really needed another outlet outside of one hour of therapy a week to be able to work through things and sort of stop my brain from like exploding from the inside with feelings and, and what I was going through. So a couple of sort of exercises that I used in journaling a lot was I would write letters to myself. I would write letters to my parents and not send them. If I was like, I just need to get this out and it's not something I actually want to say to them, I would write letters from my therapist to me as if she was there and came up with this idea of doing thought experiments where I would be like, oh, so if I was doing, say, a fear food and I wasn't quite at the point where I was ready to have it yet but to kind of thought experiment in the journal of if I eat this, what might I feel? How will the world change? How will my world change? You know, what's going to happen next? As a way of showing myself that the world wasn't going to end if I ate that thing. There might be people listening who go, really, if they haven't had an eating disorder, but I can categorically say that it does feel like if you eat X, Y, Z, the world will end. As crazy as that sounds, when you're in the trenches with it, you honestly believe that how could you possibly go on once you've had a mouthful of whatever food that fear food is? Yeah. 
Yeah, and the journaling helped me work through things and eventually I worked out through sort of journaling, I'm talking about the fear foods here, that it was actually just fear and that the feeling that I was having about the fear foods was just fear in that, yes, it's very intense and it's hard, but I can deal with fear. I do other scary things, so therefore I can sit with this fear. It's just fear. And life goes on. It sure does. Yeah. (laughs) And fear is a hard thing to sit with, but you you can do it. Yeah. And then the creative side of things, I, I really wish I had the chance to connect with an art therapist, but I kind of just did things on my own at home. I did mostly like finger painting and collage. And I just bought some some cheap acrylic paints. And when it got to the point that I couldn't express in words through my journal what I was feeling, I would just go and do these finger paintings and kind of go into this like creative flow zone, I suppose, or something, where I would just, with my hands in the paint and mixing all the colours together and making horrible grey, black, disgusting things and really be getting my emotions out on that and I used different colours so I had red was anger for me black was like despair blue was like sad so they were the three colours that I mostly used and mostly just very you know rough kind of finger painting things and they're not anything that you would call art but they were so helpful and then I would take them to therapy the next week and be like I did this and this is what I was feeling and so just having that was a really core part of recovery for me of being able to express all that kind of thing. Yeah, and the other thing that journaling really helped with was I developed an idea of coming to a truce with my eating disorder and kind of going, okay, well, we're going to do this recovery thing. So I'm not quite ready to like progress that much yet, but let's just not get any worse. Let's just say, okay, I'm not going to push the eating disorder too hard by doing a million fear foods at once and in return you're not going to make any new rules and you're not going to make anything any harder than it is and we'll just be here in the present just for now and start there you know having that and then I'd written it down so I could return to it and go no this is what this is what we're doing no new rules I love that concept and so important to write things down I'm on it on it my clients about that all the time write it down don't type it out, actually physically write it down mm. and have it with you so that you're constantly referring to it and reminding yourself of what you decided when you were in your healthy mind, yeah. in your wise mind. Yeah. And also just writing down when you're not in your healthy mind and just ranting. Oh, that's in the equally as important. Ranting. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Talk to me about the role that yoga's played in your recovery. Uh, so yoga was, I was trying to find I was in so much distress that I was trying to find something or anything that would help calm me down and help me cope so I tried different types of meditations but I couldn't sit still for more than a minute to kind of do that and then I eventually discovered yoga through an amazing podcast that ABC Classic has called Classic Flow where they pair classical music with yoga sequences and the 
breathing in the yoga matches the phrases in the music and the intensity of the yoga matches the intensity of the music. So it's a really lovely way to come into yoga but also be listening to some really nice classical music. And so I started doing that and it really helped. And I just had a little practice of my own at home. And the thing that I really liked about the way that the Classic Flow presenter was sort of talking about the yoga moves was really in a very body-centred kind of way, a body-neutral kind of way of becoming aware of your body touching the ground or the chair or whatever you're sitting on, becoming aware, say, in a, in a fold forward of your belly touching your thigh. And then for me, that was hard because I didn't want that to be there. I, in eating disorder, thought I wanted there to be space there. But the way that yoga describes it, it's a very a calm and allowing kind of way. And then as I progressed in yoga and in recovery, the way that the body parts interacted with each other or with the floor changes. And it's all, it just has this beautiful language about it. And it's now something that I do most days, even just for five minutes to just, I don't need it so much now to help feel grounded, but it just feels like a nice sort of meditative thing to do for myself and to be in touch with my body and feeling different parts and how that feels today and self-care as well yeah Mm, self-care is so so important Mm. tell me about your ordinary life revelation this was another sort of journaling thing that I had developed through journaling and through some art as well I got to a point in recovery where I felt like that if I continued recovery I'd have to go back to being extraordinary and achieving and doing all these things for other people and having a very high-flying kind of life. I felt that I would have to keep improving my financial status or my job status or get better friends or, which is ridiculous, or, you know, have to get a better job overseas, do all sorts of crazy things. And I realised that wasn't me. I just like to be in my nice little apartment, in my nice little job that I love. I don't need to go and get a big position overseas or move into a bigger, better house or anything like that. And once I realised that actually what I could be was just ordinary and have an ordinary life and that was actually enough. That was okay. More than that, it's extraordinary. Like I always say to people, an ordinary life after an eating disorder is extraordinary. Yeah. Because you have fought so hard to be able to exist as Nadia living your life. And that's actually an extraordinary life because you're free. Yeah, I'm free. Yeah. Oh, I just got goosebumps. So I did, I did this lovely artwork of it, of um, some collage, where I got all different patterns of paper and tore them all up into smallish pieces and put them all back together again. So it's a very highly textured kind of uh, background. And then got some, you know how you used to do letters out of magazines and you'd cut all letters out and things like that? Oh, yeah. I'm a collager <laughs> from way back. Yep. I remember that. And right, so then I'd written An Ordinary Life in all different fonts and all different sizes and stuff like that. So 
it just reminds me when I look at it that there's richness and layering and all sorts of elements and variety in an ordinary life and that that's just enough. And I just love that now. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. What was it like navigating work whilst you were still in recovery? So, I mean, I'm very lucky that I had a job before I got sick. And actually, while I was sick, I was promoted and moved from part-time to full-time. And I'd already been at that job. By the time I started recovery, I'd already been at the job for about six years. So I was fortunate that I was trusted and known for my work already. So then when I came to recovery, I guess I had two choices. I could have quit work or stopped work to do recovery full time. Or I, and this is what I did do, was I reduced my work to part-time and took on recovery basically as a second full-time job. So I was able to reduce my hours down. I did about, at first I did about five hours a day and then I went home and did journaling and art and a fear food challenge and I slept a lot because I was just absolutely exhausted Mm. all the time and exhausted from going to work and pretending to be okay enough to like function and then come home. My employer was just so understanding and flexible. And there were days when I couldn't get out of bed where I'd just text them and say, I'm going to be late or I can't come in today. And I had a doctor's letter that, you know, covered me for those times. And so I had a lot of sick leave built up because I'd already been there for quite a while and never taken a day off sick. So I started using that first. And then once I'd used that down, I just had to take a pay cut and get paid for what I worked. And then I've been building it up slowly. Now I'm up to seven hours a day, which is almost full time. So they've just been amazing. Oh, that's so wonderful that you felt supported in that capacity. Yeah. And having work there and being able to still participate in that side of my life, I think was really important. Mm. to keeping that kind of going and also it meant that now that I am recovered I've got something already on the go I don't have to search for a job so I'm very fortunate in that because it really could have gone another way and I'm very lucky that I had that and my wonderful colleagues who supported me and I told a couple of people like I think the self-disclosure is really important in the right context and especially in the workplace Because once you self-disclose and you say, I've got a problem, they have to accommodate you. That's a law. They can't sack you because of your issue. But if you don't disclose and you start to have issues in your work then and you haven't disclosed, then they don't know why that's happening. And they might discipline or do something that you maybe wouldn't want. So I think it's very worth disclosing to HR and manager if you can in in any mental health situation in the workplace. I think that 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 helps a lot and then they need to do research and understand what you need and what accommodations you might need. And just having, it was helpful for me, just having a few people around who knew where I could go, oh, I'm not coping today or can I just go out and eat my snack with you or who knew that when there were like staff party, staff birthday cake kind of things, there were times when I wasn't ready to eat cake. And so I had someone who knew, so I wanted to go upstairs and celebrate birthday cake with with my colleagues, but I wasn't ready to eat cake or hold cake 
or be anywhere near cake. So one of my colleagues was really great with just being able to sort of block me from <laughs> being offered cake in the first place of just saying for me no or just taking it for me. And I think that would have been a lot harder without her. Yeah. How important do you believe lived experience recovery coaches are in the later stages of recovery? Oh, I wish that I had had access to that in my later stages of recovery because I really felt that I, once I'd got past the, the eating part and I was in the bit where I was trying to live recovered life and that's a very different kind of outlook that you end up with than a ordinary person, someone who hasn't been through that kind of experience. And so it was very confusing for me how to fit back into society, how to validate myself daily of what I needed to do for recovery. And I think it's so important to have someone who can model that and show that there's a difference, that yes, we have been through something really traumatic and really unique that many other people haven't been through and how to continue to live recovered life in a healthy way with self-care with balance because society is still very achievement focused and very ladder climbing and for me that's not what works for me so I felt very much like an outlier but also very determined to continue living healthy recovered life so I think having a, a coach such as yourself to, who's been through such a thing to go yeah this is how I felt too this is what happens yeah yeah it's a bit weird everyone is crazy but we're just going to do our thing and just to walk the journey alongside you and meet you where you're at mm. no judgment no nothing but also for you to be able to know that we get it mm. We understand. You don't have to explain yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, tell me about your amazing goal of establishing a day drop-in centre for eating disorder support. This is something that's been somewhat of a recent dream for me. I saw a documentary on SBS that was the Osher Gunsberg one. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called A Matter of Life and Death. And it talks about suicide prevention. And one of the scenes in it, he goes and visits this drop-in centre for people with depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and stuff like that. They could just come and it was like a homey kind of setup, have a cup of tea, talk with some workers about what they were feeling, just kind of start to calm down, feel a bit better and then be able to go back out and do their day. And I started looking around, oh, is, is there anything like this for eating disorders? Because that sounds really amazing. And I couldn't find anything. So then I thought, oh, well, maybe that's something I might like to do once I retire from my current career. Maybe that's something I'll do later. And I'm just so enthusiastic about it. It's, that's all it is at the moment. It's an idea. It's such a fantastic concept. We've talked about doing something very similar at the House of Hope. Oh, once we finally open that and just mm. having that ability for people to, to drop in, you know, having certain time period where that's encouraged and there is a safe space to come and, as you say, just have a cup of tea and know that you're in a space where people get it. Yeah, or to come and do a eat lunch, do a challenge mm. with someone who understands or just do some arts and crafts and chill out for a bit, especially over the Christmas holiday break. I find that 
when I was recovering, that was definitely the hardest time for me because my therapist's away, my GP's away, everybody's away, everything's closed. And there's two weeks, there's basically the hardest two weeks of the year where all of your normal routines are just gone out the window and everything's about food and everything's about happy and family and mm-hmm. fun. And if you don't feel like that, then you feel very left out and very wrong. And I th- think that this kind of drop-in thing would be something that would be amazing to start doing over that period. So that there's just there's something that people can come to and there's somebody there to listen. So, yeah, that's a big dream of mine. I look forward to seeing how that evolves. <laughs> now, what is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? Really, the most valuable thing is that I found myself. That's, I am, I am me now. I've, I've found my true self and I'm so grateful for that and it's so valuable to me. I am valuable to myself. And to the rest of the world. <laughs> In your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who's going through an eating disorder? I think the first thing is to just be there for them and be there to support them. You don't necessarily have to talk to them about the eating a lot of the time. Sometimes it's just about being there and holding space for them and also not forcing them to go faster than they're ready to go. And understanding that if you haven't had an eating disorder yourself, that you won't fully understand what they're going through and be grateful for that. And you'll never understand fully. And just letting them feel that you're there and encouraging them to to connect with community, to connect with a therapist and understanding that the eating disorder is not a choice. It might have started as a series of choices, but it's no longer a choice once it's taken hold. They're not choosing. Choice is completely not on the table at all. There is no ability to choose. As you get further along, you, it's even hard, was hard for me to choose recovery to choose the right path, let alone choose to keep doing the eating disorder and just understanding that they can feel very lost in themselves. Yeah. And what would be your advice for those brave warriors out there who are still in the trenches of their eating disorder? Mm. Keep going. Keep going with recovery. And know that not to blame, not to blame yourself because Eating disorders don't just happen for no reason. And it's not just about the eating. And recovery is really long, hard work. But the outcome of being able to be your true self is so worth it. And while I really wouldn't, I wouldn't wish the pain of an eating disorder on anyone, my worst enemy, anyone, what it's given me and the opportunity that it's given for me to be my true self, I really wouldn't change it for the world. 
I am so thrilled that you're here, that you are Nadia, and that you have found that that sense of peace and acceptance. And I very much look forward to seeing how things unfold for you with the day drop-in centre and all of the, I feel there's more. I feel there's even more than that. You've got all this wisdom within you. So thank you for sharing that today with me on the podcast. And I know it's going to have helped so many people out there. And you are truly amazing. Thank you so much, Millie. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.